Hey everyone, we're trying something a bit different this week and I am sharing an interview where I'm the guest for once. I was interviewed by my friend Alex Price on the Finite B2B Marketing Podcast about my experience of running a marketing operation through an acquisition. We talk about everything from when you announce that acquisition to employees and how you go about doing that, how to align two brands right from the outset of a new relationship and how you can explain to your customers, your partners, why this acquisition makes sense and what benefit it's going to provide to them. So very excited to share this interview. was a little bit nervous being on the other side of the microphone for once, but uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the podcast that exists to help companies rethink the status quo on how they win new business. Each week, I sit down with experts to understand how marketing and sales is broken in their industry and what they're doing to fix it. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Finite Podcast. I'm excited to welcome Jason Bradwell onto the episode today. Jason is Senior Director of Group Product Marketing and Communications at DeltaTray, a really innovative technology business providing solutions to the sports and entertainment industry. I'm talking to Jason about marketing through an acquisition, which is a really niche but interesting subject. We all know the technology landscape moves quickly with companies being acquired regularly. And Jason shares some great tips on marketing through an acquisition based on some first-hand experience. Jason also runs his own B2B marketing podcast called B2B Better, a newsletter called B2B Byte. And if you're on Twitter, I definitely recommend following Jason at Jason R. Bradwell, as he shares some great insights there too. I'll drop links to all of these below, but for now, happy listening. The Finite Community and Podcast are kindly supported by 93X, the digital marketing agency working exclusively with ambitious, fast-growth B2B technology companies. Visit 93x.agency to find out how they partner with marketing teams in B2B technology companies to drive growth. Morning, Jason. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Alex. Thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking. I know we've had this episode in the pipeline for a little while, I feel, but we finally pinned down a date. Yeah, it has been a long time coming. You know, I think we first started talking about it when I had you on on my podcast and that was like, you were one of the first guests and I launched it back in August. So yeah, very glad that we managed to make this work. So we're, we're talking about a really interesting subject today, marketing through an acquisition, which I think is one of those things that, as you pointed out, there's not a huge amount out there around acquisition at least not from a marketing perspective. I think there's plenty of top level kind of business acquisition related content out there, but very little that dives into kind of real life case study, I guess, of some of the stories and the experiences you've had of going through an acquisition. So I'll let you in a sec explain a little bit about from what perspective you're looking at the subject. But before we even do that, I'll let you just explain a little bit about what you're up to at the moment, tell everyone who you are, uh, and then we can dive into the subject. Yeah, of course. I think it's a really interesting subject and I think we have a lot to talk about. And as, as you say, I think there is a lot of material out there for leaders of organizations, CEOs, people like that who are having to make some very complex decisions that encompass the entire organization, but very few materials I've come across that talk to it from a marketing perspective. But to answer your questions, yeah. So I'm the Senior Product Marketing and Communications Director for a tech organization called Delta Tray. And Delta Tray, they operate on what we call the field to fan spectrum. So they have a hand in everything from the production of content 
particularly sports content on the field in a stadium, putting cameras down, that kind of thing, and then all the way transporting it through to the end consumer so that they are seeing it on a screen in their hands or in their living rooms and everything in between. So kind of match data collection analysis um, and distribution, building websites and apps, doing broadcast graphics, OTT services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a bit of a cliche, but we think of ourselves as the industry's best kept secret. It's been going for 34 years and work with, you know, many, many of the top tier, tier zero, tier one sport entertainment organizations around the world. We like to say sometimes that if you were to pull the plug out of Delta Tray, the world of sports and entertainment would come to a come to a crumbling halt. But, you know, maybe that's a little bit overkill. And we're a big enterprise tech organization, long sales cycles, big deals, and, you know, a, a complex value proposition. And I actually came into Delta Tray through an acquisition in 2018. I worked for an organization then called Massive Interactive. It was a user experience software company um, that had a tool that allowed OTT providers over the top video streaming providers to, you know, very quickly and seamlessly change the user experience on the front end of their apps without touching any code. And Delta Tray acquired Massive to build out its OTT portfolio of products and services. So, you know, what we're going to talk about today is come from firsthand experience in some cases, but also, you know, I, I always try and have these conversations where I can with marketing leaders who've gone through a similar experience to me, either on the buyer or the seller side and, and get their take on it as well. Interesting. So I guess let's approach it kind of chronologically in terms of an acquisition process. I guess the very first thing that comes to mind for me is even before digging into the you know, getting ready to sell side of things, how early on in this case did you even know that you were being acquired? And because I always wonder whether it's something that, you know, that a couple of the C-suite know about and then suddenly it's just announced to the rest of the company the next day or obviously in certain marketing and comms roles, I think there's more need for some of the team to be involved, but is it still just some of the team and not everybody? So what was the kind of timeline and run up to even, even the pre-acquisition stage of, okay, let's start planning, getting ready to sell. Was it a kind of open secret and that the plan had always been to sell and the CEO was very open about that? Or was it more of a, I guess, a little bit more of a discrete process? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I like to think, well, I think that leaders of businesses like to think that, you know, they are giving their teams lots of time to plan for a potential acquisition. But to be honest, I don't think you can, you can ever have enough time because I think if you really want to do it well, then you're looking at something like a three-year runway to a point of actually signing a contract and being acquired. Because, you know, I like to think of it as pre-acquisition, you've got two goals from, from a marketing point of view. One, it's about putting yourself in front of a suitable potential buyer and making sure that the right organizations that you want to be acquiring you have got their eyes on you. And two, that you're doing everything you can from a marketing point of view to raise the perceived value of that organization, of the organization that you work for and that, and that you want to sell. And that is a big brand exercise, right? Particularly for companies that I'm familiar with, which is what I call kind of sleeper organizations, where perhaps, you know, marketing has never really been a core element of business growth, much as something like sales has. When you're talking big enterprise sales, typically it's who you know rather than the blog posts you write or the white papers you produce. And that's a big mindset shift for, for these kind of organizations. You know, they've decided they want to be acquired and, you know, they need to suddenly start putting in the legwork from a marketing and branding point of view 
to position the company to the right buyers and also to raise the perceived value of that organization. And that takes time. So I like to say that it, you know, it should start three years before that process. Obviously, that is a big leap of trust for an owner of a business, for a CEO to open that conversation up to the wider team. And I think what it really hammers home to me is why it is so important to have a marketing representative in the leadership team. Because if your business is somewhat hierarchical and, you know, from, you know, at the top level, you're in a need to know basis, but the level down, you're on a not, you know, you don't need to know. That's where suddenly you start seeing a disconnect, right? And there's obviously an ambition from the leadership team to, you know, make this move and, and sell the company, but marketing is kept in the dark up until almost the contracts are being printed out. So I think having that representative in the leadership team who can strategically, start positioning the organization well in advance without necessarily, you know, telling their team directly, this is what we're going for, but can start setting the objectives and setting the strategy that's going to position the company in that way. You know, I, th- I think that's why you need a marketing representative in the leadership team to, to be able to enact that. It reminds me of the book. I don't know whether you come across it, Built to Sell, which is, I guess, kind of takes your three-year window and basically says, well, actually, never mind a time frame. like we should just be operating businesses as if they're kind of getting ready to be sold at some point from the very beginning, which I think is an interesting, interesting framework. But I think one that, uh, I don't know, it's easy to say, but not so easy to do in practice, I think, and when the day-to-day uh, gets in the way of things. But so on a more tangible level, is, and was that a bigger investment in PR and engaging with industry press? And I guess, was it was it pretty multifaceted in terms of just covering all of the basis of increasing the um, perceived awareness of, of the business? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think for a lot of B2B organizations, particularly ones that are kind of going into a period of, you know, we're going to be selling this organization in the next three to five years, a huge focus gets placed on revenue, right? And things like EBITDA and making sure that the financials stack up. And in turn, I mean, that the knock-on effect of that is that, you know, things like lead gen, activation, you know, getting pipeline, uh, growing pipeline suddenly becomes, if it hasn't been already, you know, the primary focus. And it should be a focus, but it shouldn't be the only focus. There's a great report that came out a couple of days ago. You may have seen it from the B2B Institute, which I think is um, from LinkedIn. And it's called 2030 B2B Marketing Trends or something like that. And they talk about how you know, the B2B businesses that are going to be winning in, in 10 years time are the ones that are devoting 50% of their time to that kind of, you know, activation part of their marketing, um, bringing in leads, growing pipeline, and 50% to building out brand, you know, and building brand equity because that brand equity cementing yourself in the minds of your, of your industry as the go-to provider of your solution of choice that is what's going to contribute to your long-term success. And I think particularly in an acquisition environment, during the the due diligence process, right, where, you know, the financial entity, the legal entity, the acquiring company is, you know, they've given a statement of intent and they're now lifting the hood of the car and checking that the engine's running as as it should do. That is such an intense process and it covers so much of the organization beyond just the financials it involves employees it involves customers it involves partners you know you're really they're doing that to get a true picture of what the business is all about 
And I think that's why an investment in brand and making sure things like, you know, your customer experience, your employee experience, your partner experience is as good as your marketing is making it out to be, right? That's why it's so important because if you're, you know, at the early stage saying, look, our financials are really healthy and we're on such a great growth trajectory, but then they actually get into the business and they can see that it's, you know, this may be a little bit intense, but rotten from the inside, you know, it's two differing pitches and ultimately that can then impact the, uh, the, the sale, the, the sale journey. So yeah, I, I think press, you know, it, it's what all CEOs want to see. They want to see their names on the financial times and in, in the wall street journal, they want to see leads coming in. They want to see pipeline growing. All of that is incredibly important, but don't discount the investment in building out your brand experience across all touch points, you know, that your potential customers are going to be experiencing when working with your business, because that is what's going to contribute to your long-term success. Yeah, some really good advice. And I think one marketers can really think about, I, I think, as you've alluded to, like any of these acquisition processes are generally just pretty much or heavily driven and owned by finance people, right? Whether that's investors or M&A advisors, whoever it might be, no matter how you look at it, there's always going to be a heavy weighting to as you say, like multiples against EBITDA or whatever the things are that matter. But as you point out, when the when the due diligence gets a little bit deeper, stuff can kind of come out of the woodwork. And if I can say, I think, you know, from from a marketer's point of view, you know, I consider it our responsibility to be equipping the people who are sitting in the room with those, you know, with the private equity firms or, you know, the bankers or whoever, you know, it, it's a marketer's responsibility if they're not in that room having that conversation to be equipping the people that are in that room, the CEO, the CFO, you know, whoever, to be able to tell that story, right? So, yeah, that, that's also a very important part of this process. It's don't just focus on kind of what you're putting out into the market and, you know, what you're putting into your press releases, but how are you equipping your team who are having these very long and often intense conversations with financial institutions that there is value in marketing one but also you know brand development brand equity i want to talk a bit about the the acquisition kind of process itself and uh, so you've kind of made this big investment in marketing brand you've 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 hopefully got the the business out there a bit more people are more aware of you in the industry and then it appears that there's an opportunity for two businesses to come together at what point do you start looking at the kind of uh, I guess alignment and integration piece in any shape or form. Is it once everything's been signed and okay, we're being acquired, let's start working together, or is there some is there some conversations earlier on? Give us a sense of of that side of things. I think it's dependent on the situation, but it kind of goes back to my original point, which is having a marketing representative in the leadership team, you know, and on both sides. Because if that's the case, then you can start having these conversations very, very early on. You know, the contract doesn't have to be signed. You know, you, it, it, the, these processes, there is often a, well, there's always kind of a statement of intent from the inquirer, from the acquiring company that, you know, yes, we're going to go and make that purchase. And then we move into that due diligence process and, you know, all things going well, we are going to make this happen. And we were just negotiating, you know, possibly on, on price and things like that. So as soon as that has come in, as soon as you've kind of, as soon as the seller has identified a single buyer, narrowed down the list of potential buyers to just, just one, 
you know, in theory, you can start having that conversation. And I would probably suggest that you do, right? Because the worst thing that can happen is it's 4 a.m. in the morning and you've got the FT on the phone who are like, are you making the sale or not? Because you're kind of hovering your pen over the contract and trying to negotiate on the final few pounds and pennies that you're going to, that you're going to make. And only then the marketing team are, are getting involved, right? So I think as soon as you've narrowed it down to a single company that's going to be acquiring the other, that's when you should be having the conversation with one another. The, the marketing leads from both organizations need to be coming together and communicating and sharing ways of working and equipping each other with, you know, each of their respective stories. You know, what is the organization about? You know, what we, what's our USP? What are our points of leverage in the market? How do we bring those together into a coherent narrative that, you know, we're going to be putting into the PR that's going to be announcing this thing? Everyone needs to be well in advance of the actual announcement and signing of the contract. Everyone needs to be aligned on kind of what the goal is. And it can be a tricky one when you've got kind of three sets of leads potentially, you know, acquirer, seller, and a financial institution somewhere above that. It can be a little bit tricky to get those aligned if you haven't had the time to to communicate and and uh, kind of almost, you know, whiteboard it out uh, in advance of what a launch would look like. I think the, the finance institution is an interesting one because I think I mentioned you actually recorded an episode earlier this week with a, a VC. Um, we were talking about you know what VCs look for from a marketing team and things that matter from marketing from a VC perspective when they're looking at funding rounds and all of those kind of things. I don't know what the situation was in the specific acquisition that you went through, but I think those financial institutions can be a really interesting persona that marketing kind of have to have to think about sometimes more than might be obvious. Yeah, I mean, look, they're a very important part of the equation because, you know, as the ones that are, you know, effectively bankrolling the deal, you know, they need to be instilling confidence, you know, from the private equity world, they need to be instilling confidence in their backers that they're making the right kind of choices and they need to set the tone of what the next five, 10 years is going to look like as they maximize the value by extension of the company that's acquiring the value of the asset that they have acquired. So, they will have an agenda. And I don't say that with negative connotations, but it's just the nature of what this, this situation is. And making sure that their input is included as part of a launch marketing campaign and then ongoing communications is vitally important. You know, all goals need to be aligned. And in our case, you know, we we're very lucky that you know we have a communications counterpart at, at the private equity firm that's involved with Delta Tray, and he does a fantastic job. You know, we get on the phone every single week, and every single week we're brainstorming ideas and we're you know batting around concepts with one another on you know how do we continue telling this story. And we found him, and by extension, the private equity firm that he works for, incredibly useful in helping kind of elevate our positioning in the market and also opening doors for us. You know, I said the world's best kept secret earlier when I was talking about Delta Tray. Before we were talking to our communications counterpart over at the private equity firm, things like appearing in the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times, you know, those were just barriers that we weren't able to overcome. So I, I wouldn't I would say to anyone listening to this podcast that's in this situation, don't discount the the value that your private equity partners can bring in terms of just opening doors and, you know, just sharing ideas because ultimately what's in your best interest is in their best interest. You've touched on a few times now the kind of narrative and the story that comes with an acquisition and obviously both sides will have the kind of 
the story that they want to tell and the story that matters to them. And I'm sure there's some, in a lot of cases, some kind of personal preference worked in. And I was going to say the word ego, which is maybe a bit, bit too much. But you know, I think founders and CEOs and everyone has their own story that they want to tell of why they've sold and uh, what it means to them and what, what's next and kind of justify their decision making to everybody around them. I guess there's a, a number of different perspectives that need to be kind of hopefully aligned. How do you approach that side of things in terms of packaging up the the why, why this is happening? I mean, no company buys another company unless there is a why, you'd like to think. <laughs> when you're talking about some of the numbers that you see in private equity, you you would be it would be awful to think that anyone's just doing it for vanity. But getting to grips with kind of what the why is and wrapping this in a kind of compelling narrative that you can take to market is just so important because if you get it wrong at the beginning, you know, it does kind of set the tone for the future. You know, you only get one chance at making a good first impression. And otherwise, if if you miss it, then you're just fighting against the tide. And I think that's important that you set the tone, not just for, you know, it's not just about going out and winning new clients, but also instilling confidence in your existing clients that this is the right move. Because you got to remember that on the acquired side, on the seller side, they will have customers that will be reading a press release saying, am I still being served by the company I thought I was being served by? So getting that tone right, where this acquisition is going to mean that we can be more than the sum of our parts and we can deliver value, you know, in ways that you haven't even thought of yet. You know, that is, that is super, super important. My advice would be is really just to kind of like keep it simple, you know, because there are going to be a lot of unanswered questions across so many different things, you know, once the contract has been signed. Obviously, you'd hope a lot of it has been figured out, but inevitably, as two organizations come together, there are going to be questions that arise. You know, what's going to happen to this product when there is kind of crossover with this product? You know, who, what are the rules of engagement around territories, you know, for our, for our two respective sales teams, things like that. And they're, they're the only questions that you can really kind of start figuring out as you bring the two organizations together. So keeping your narrative simple in your announcement campaign is, I think, what is, is the kind of the key part of that. I would focus in on a single kernel, is what I like to call it, of where the business is obviously complement one another. So whether that is, you know, filling a product gap that exit that didn't that existed on either side that now is solved with with two companies coming together, whether that is, you know, hey, we can expand into a new territory or a new market or a new segment that we weren't able to previously by bringing these two companies together. Just push that single kernel of your message right to the forefront. And just that's what you should hang your communications hat on. Because and I, and I think that serves two purposes. One, it helps the market just frame and understand, okay, you know, that that's what this acquisition is all about. I can, I can get that. And it's not like this kind of 10, 15 point list of things that I have to remember. But two, there are going to be people within your organization, a lot of people within your organization on both sides that are going to have to be answering questions on a day-to-day basis, you know, from customers, you know, from partners, from their teams within the organization. And if you can equip them with just one single message that no one can question, this is why the acquisition was made and this is how it's going to deliver value in the market, that buys you some time as you're figuring out the rest of the stuff. So I know this is marketing kind of 101 to a degree, but 
please just keep it simple. You know, (laughs) a press release doesn't need to be, you know, a a novella about, you know, how these two companies were, it was written in the stars that they were going to come together. Just focus on one thing that's going to demonstrate the value of the acquisition and then just give that to everybody and it'll be fine. I think that's great advice. And you you just mentioned there the kind of internal comms part and employees and things coming together. Were there any other bits that came up for you or or that you've come across since in terms of I guess, making that easy for people to, as you say, communicate internally, communicate to partners and suppliers and everybody else. Maybe when we move on to the next bit around kind of post-acquisition, we can talk a little bit more generally about culture and different cultures coming together, but more generally just in terms of, because we talked at the start about this cadence of when do certain employees know, and I assume that a certain number of employees on both sides knew, and then suddenly others found out on the day that it was announced. And did you have a flurry of like, what's going on messages on Slack? or, Or was it kind of, Managed to the point that people, I guess, kind of knew by that point. I mean, look, it's kind of that old that old saying, you know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. If you leave things right to the last minute when it comes to employee communications on what's happening, you are going to suffer, like no question, because inevitably questions start coming up in people's mind. You know, what does this mean for my job? <laughs> you know, if you've got two teams that are, you know, by all all accounts performing the same function within both organizations do you still need to, right? And it it does obviously quite rightfully stoke some concern within employees when they start seeing things like acquisitions. And that's why making sure that you are prepared so that you can go out if you choose to on the, you know, to leave it this late on the morning of the acquisition with a, a message from the CEO, either recorded or live, an FAQ, a set of materials that you can give to your management team that, you know, they can then have those kind of one-on-one conversations with their teams. You need to be putting in the legwork up front to make sure that you are not just focusing on how am I getting the best deal for me, the owner of this organization, but also how are we, you know, instilling confidence that this is the right move for our team. And I guess I would sum it up in, in four parts. You know, it's it's about presenting that compelling vision of what the future is going to hold now that you have this combined value proposition. I would say that it's about ensuring that you've got those regular communications, you know, at the start, but then also ongoing and that the points of access for your employees to speak to their leaders and the leadership team in general are very clear. Um, Like, what do I do if I have a question? Who do I speak to? As I said, I think it's about equipping those managers to lead through change. So making sure that all the way down the hierarchy of the management structure, you know, they have that level of information to be able to answer questions on the fly. And also, you know, find ways to involve your employees, right, in the process. For instance, if you've got two offices in London, for example, find ways to bring those offices together, get the people together. You know, my, in my experience, where acquisitions have been successful is when you don't just continue to have both sets of people siloed from one another, but you actually bring them together and you integrate them. And, you know, that could be just coming into one office. That could be something as simple as just hosting a barbecue, right? And you get people talking to one another and they're establishing those connections with one another. Obviously, in a virtual environment, it's a bit more difficult. But I think, you know, the main takeaway is just find ways to involve employees in that process and get them talking to one another because by forging those links, you know, that's what's going to be the foundation on which your success is built. So you've signed on the dotted line, acquisition complete. You wake up the next day, first Monday, 
day one of new colleagues, new brands to consider. Everything's probably a little bit different. What's next? What do you do next? Oh, <laughs> that is a good question. Once you've done the announcement, if you haven't already, you need to start thinking about what is going to be your kind of first splash moment post-announcement, you know, because you want to reinforce, you know, that kernel, that that message that you had in your announcement of why this is happening as quickly as possible with a piece of with with a piece of storytelling that isn't the announcement. Because the announcement is just is just words, right? It's just, you know, it's it needs evidence. It's kind of proving and demonstrating the kernel of such and Exactly. So for instance, say that, you know, the kernel of your of your announcement story was the fact that, you know, hey, now that we've brought these two companies together, we can really go and and kill it in the US. Like that's going to be our new target market. Being able to follow that up, you know, a few weeks, a few months later with we've just won this amazing new client in the US and it's a joint win basically, which leverages the both sides of the equation. You know, that's a that's a great splash moment that demonstrates to your industry, to the media, to your clients, to potential clients that there's some juice in this idea and it's already proving itself. And also obviously it, it shows value to the to the financial institution up at the top. So yeah, I, I think as soon as day one after the contracts have been signed, you know, working on what is the next splash moment of the two organizations that have now come together as one, you know, what is going to reinforce this idea of the why um, the two businesses have come together, you know, that, that, that should be the number one priority. And would you say that's a fairly kind of ongoing thing? And we can talk a little bit in a sec about, you know, how two different brands might stay in market together or how they might be merged and stuff. But is, is this kind of a consistent reinforcement across the next year, 18 months beyond even, do you think it needs to be you kind of thought of as a as a bit of an always on uh, narrative that needs to be told. Yeah, absolutely, and it, and it does kind of segue into you know the question mark around like what happens to the sole brand because I think ultimately that is going to influence a lot of what your ongoing communications is is going to look like. But yeah, of course, you know you need to be just like with with any marketing strategy or communication strategy sitting down on day 1 after the contracts have been signed and kind of mapping out you know what are these kind of hero stories these anchors these splash moments um that are constantly reinforcing the, that that kernel of why this deal has been made is super super important but i would caveat that and say you don't want to set in stone too early what that is going to look like, you know, because it's a very volatile situation once an acquisition has been made. And I don't say volatile again with negative connotations, it's just the word that came to mind. But, you know, it's a very fast moving situation. It's a very dynamic situation. You know, lots of answers are coming out of the woodwork on some of these big questions that existed pre-acquisition. And you don't want to, you kind of almost as a communications team need to give yourself the room to be able to adapt to an emerging narrative, right? As the two organizations come together. So while you may have, you know, two to three kind of storylines or threads within your within your storytelling that demonstrate the why this acquisition has come together, new opportunities will present themselves as time goes on. And yeah, you want to remain nimble and agile and flexible to be able to accommodate those in your communications while the, while the dust is starting to settle. The brand piece is a really interesting one because I guess in most acquisitions, eventually the brand that's been acquired will be phased out in some form or another. I guess in certain 
situations for whatever strategic thinking has been done it makes sense to maintain a brand and that brand would always exist even though it's got a different parent company but i think probably in the majority i don't have much hard data to back that up but i think generally speaking the acquired brand will will gradually disappear with time albeit with a kind of phased integration piece and there might be an earn out and all the different kind of complexity in the in the background how do you approach that i don't know whether you can talk about kind of specifically the case that you went through and, and what happened to the, the brand side of things there but i guess just in terms of broad terms as well what that process of phasing a brand out uh, can look like yeah so one of three things is going to happen either the brand is going to be absorbed immediately um, the acquired brand the brand will be absorbed later or the brand will be kept in market. And I think, you know, kept in market, you think of like Beats, for example, with Apple, right? It's, it's still in market, even if it's owned by Apple. In our case, the, the, the massive, the company I worked for that was acquired by Delta Trey, you know, we, we fit in that middle category where the brand existed for a period of about six, 12 months following the acquisition and then slowly was kind of phased out. And to give you a tangible example of, of how we kind of manage that transition, you know, there's a very, important trade show in our industry that happens every September in Amsterdam called IBC. And um, for years, Massive had had a huge exhibition booth right in the eyeline of people walking through the front door. So you walk through the front door and boom, the Massive booth. And our brand color was orange, so you couldn't miss it in a sea of blue and gray. And it, you know, it became a bit of a centerpiece you know, for people walking around the hall because if you needed to orientate yourself, just peek your head up and find the big orange booth and you kind of know where you are. Um, and that was that having that booth, I think, was a really important part of the transition process. We knew that the brand of Massive was going to eventually be phased out and we could use our presence at IBC at, at the event um, and the booth to reinforce the, the value that was going to come from having been acquired by Delta Trey. So what we did was we you know, after the acquisition, which happened in November of 2018, and the event was the following September or something, which was quite, you know, which was towards the end of that phase out process, we were just doing really simple things like just having the Delta Trade logo mark, you know, across all of our materials where you had the big massive logo at the top on the top of the booth, which was then kind of mirrored next to the Delta Tray logo. All across all of our marketing communication materials, we were kind of slowly starting to adopt the the kind of the brand colors, the style guide, things like that. And also, you know, with our sales team, we were making sure that they were confident when they were giving demos and they were talking to their prospects, what the combined value proposition of the two organizations coming together was and how they could effectively sell that uh, to their prospective customers. So, you know, on one hand, it's the fairly kind of visual light touch elements in terms of just swapping colors, swapping brand marks, things like that. But then that's kind of counterweighted with a very important part, which is the equipping the the people on the ground to go and tell that story. And then we we kind of phased out the massive brand, I think, in the new year, in, in January of 2019. So what was that timeline overall? About you. Okay. And I must ask from a, I guess, from a more personal perspective for you as a marketer, how was that kind of, I guess, to some extent, saying goodbye to a brand that you've been involved in, in building up? to you know really driving to get its its value recognized in the industry to help with part of the sale and then uh, kind of eventually kind of saying goodbye to it well i think personally it's a very rewarding experience to go through this right i think that 
being able to live and work and successfully through see through an acquisition just personally and professionally is a very rewarding experience because it is not everyone can experience it and especially in a position that I was in where you know I wasn't where I was able to directly contribute to the ongoing strategy of how these two brands were going to come together that was a very rewarding experience of course it is a little bit like saying goodbye to a love interest when you have to let go of a brand that you have worked so hard and building up but it kind of goes back to what I've what I've been saying about the value that these two companies coming together is going to bring you know an acquisition is being made because there is a belief that the two companies will be more than the sum of their parts and i think as a marketer you should just look at it as a new opportunity to go out there and continue developing your skill set and work with an exciting new exciting new property so yeah personally i found i found it a very rewarding experience that has certainly molded me as a, as a professional and as a marketer i want to wrap up by talking about the coming together of all the different systems tools, infrastructure, processes, I don't know, project management softwares, all the different things that end up kind of coming together and side by side. We talked a bit about the, the cultural element and potentially kind of overlapping roles and team structures. I mean, did team structures change a lot? Did you find that you were kind of saying, well, we use this tool for that? And we, you know, Dr. Trey was saying, well, we use this and you had to merge things together. And I guess that's probably part of kind of the integration piece and it doesn't have to happen overnight. Uh, but it'd be interesting to know how you approach that side of things. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting one and inevitably two organizations that are coming together are going to have very different kind of workflows and tools that they use to to manage their processes. And it was, you know, it, it can be a little bit of a bit of a shock to the system, you know, if you're using HubSpot for example and the the company that's acquiring you doesn't because then that you know it's not just the tool it's all of the workflows and the processes and the mindset around using that tool that needs to that needs to change i think what we did in our in our case you know we looked at it as a marketing team as an opportunity to forge new ground and establish a new set of of tools and processes together um, as a brand new team so one of the first major projects that that we looked at was relaunching our website and that facilitated a, a very interesting conversation, a series of conversations around, you know, how do we want to run as a team and what does our kind of content production workflow look like? And, you know, how do we want to manage digital marketing? And we were, so we were fortunate in that regard that we had a, had a, t a leadership team that was ready and willing to, you know, facilitate that part of the journey for us. Like, you know, yes, we're assigning budget to you so that you can, you know, effectively start from scratch and build out the processes you want to run as a team. So having that kind of central project that we could all get behind, I think was really important and it's, you know, contributed to our ongoing success to this day. But yeah, you know, concessions will have to be made. I would just kind of end on that. If this is going to work, you need to be ready for change and, and willing to accept change and, tools are just ways to implement ideas um, ultimately you know it, the, the more important thing I think is you know as a team how and as a culture within that team how can we come together and most effectively create the best ideas that are going to get our story to market and the tools are just a way that we're going to get those out into the into the world and they're kind of insignificant in that regard yeah that resonates with me for sure I think I always talk about the, the people in the process being far more important than the tools actually i don't know what you saw but there was a really great uh just to wrap up a, a google documentary about how search works they released on youtube 
a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a month or two ago now. And it made me laugh because it kind of followed one of their engineering teams as they basically worked on releasing a new update to Google. And they went into this final big meeting. There was this final review as to whether or not these new, you know, these basically algorithm updates would get deployed. And it basically said, um, you know, once it's approved, uh, all that somebody does is go into a Google sheet and change a, a drop down in a cell. Um, it made me laugh that, and particularly for me, being in the agency world some of the time, how many tools and platforms and things that we all want to use the whole time, and the latest bit of SaaS for absolutely everything. And that was Google literally project managing Google itself out of a Google sheet. And um, that really made me think about how overkill some of these uh, tools are. And if you've got people and process aligned, then the tool is, as you say, just a, a vehicle. Absolutely. You know, st- instead of spending, you know, a day arguing about whether you're going to use HubSpot or not, spend that day just sounds a bit fluffy, but just going for a walk and just talking and brainstorming ideas and having fun. Like you've got these two amazing companies that have now come together. You know, we've, well, we had five brains, we've now got 10 brains. How can we bring those together as a team and do something that the industry has never seen before and really hammer home the fact that this was an you know a, an acquisition that was made for a good reason so yeah and as you say the, the the tools are just are just implementation it's much more important to focus on how do i get people working together efficiently but also creatively definitely well i think there's been some awesome advice there i think this is uh, going to go into the the archive of anybody that's going through acquisition needs to listen to this because um, there's some really tangible tips which as we said, there's not a huge amount out there. So I think for you to share all of this openly and uh, your first-hand experience is super valuable. So we will wrap up there, but I will finish by saying a big thank you for, for sharing everything uh, as you have done. I appreciate it, Alex. No, thank you very much for having me. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you want to learn more about how to win new business through modern day marketing, why not sign up for my newsletter, The B2B Byte? John Bon Jovi calls it the best marketing newsletter he's ever read. It would also mean a lot if you could leave a review for this podcast, hit subscribe, or share it with a friend. Bonus points for all three. And why not follow me on Twitter at Jason R. Bradwell? All my best stuff is on Twitter. See you next time.